Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. If you didn't happen to be with us last Sunday, uh, we studied Haggai chapter 1 and verses 2 through 11, uh, but we did not finish the passage. Uh, I'm not going to read the text again, but uh, I will bring us all up to date in case you happened to have missed. In this passage, several waves of Jews. Now, these are God's Old Testament chosen people. It wasn't Ethiopia. It wasn't Southeast Asia. It was the Jews whom he worked through primarily uh, in the Old Testament. And they are God's chosen people. And they are returning from exile, from captivity in Babylon, and have been for several years rebuilding parts of Jerusalem. There's a governor named Zerubbabel. He led a first wave of these expatriates to repopulate Jerusalem. That was in 538 B.C. They laid a foundation for God's temple, but then the construction has, by the time of Haggai, uh, ground to a halt for 16 years. By the way, since we have been talking about building and builders, if you're wondering where the ministry of Nehemiah falls, that's probably a question some of you have, a uh, very, very renowned builder in the Old Testament. Nehemiah arrives much later to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to reinstall the city gates. He doesn't come in until about 445 B.C. During the period we're looking at in Haggai, it's 520 B.C., most of the city remained in piles of rubble due to a violent siege by a king named, named Nebuchadnezzar. That king of Babylon invaded Judea. That was in about 605 B.C. So just to put it in order here, you've got 605 B.C. is the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, all due to Israel's disobedience, so God brought in a foreign king to chastise them. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes, arrives in Judea. 586 B.C., the temple and Jerusalem are destroyed. 538 B.C., you have Zerubbabel coming back and, and laying a foundation for the temple. And then we're at 520 B.C. now, 18 years later. Uh, and this is the time of Haggai. It'll be another 70 years or so, 445, before uh, Nehemiah will come on the scene. This is all Israel's repopulating the promised land. Last Sunday... In verses 2 through 11, well, we saw how out of this rubble, the Jews had found, well, they found plenty of time, uh, resources, and initiative uh, to build their own houses. Yet they refused to embrace God's command to them 
to build his. So God, always merciful, God in his mercy sent his word, sent word by the prophet Haggai. This is an act of mercy. Consider your ways. The Hebrew phrase we learned last week, consider your ways, means look at where your heart has been leading you. It is on a path leading away from me. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God warned us that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So be wary of the path that your heart takes. And don't miss this as we return to our passage today. Don't miss this. Their sinful hearts had caused them to conclude that all of the time that they had saved by not building God's temple and not serving the Lord, they concluded that would multiply their opportunities for success elsewhere. Think about that. Not only were they able to, well, fix up their own houses, avoiding the Lord's house surely meant there would also be more time for more work. They had more time to call clients. They could pick up a side job, work some overtime, you know, expand their financial portfolio. Besides, just think of all the money that they would lose if they devoted their extra time to Christ's church. Now, I mean building God's temple, just a slip of the tongue Just think of all that they would lose if they took the time that they were earning to build God's temple. In this really ancient agricultural society, farmers and their laborers, well, they could use all that time to grow more, earn more, certainly harvest more. And after their long, hard days, a loving God would certainly understand uh, why each man scurries off to their own house uh, while God's house is lying desolate. Surely God would understand. Uh, Besides, such a strong work ethic would provide them with more access to share with the orphan and the widow. Because time is money, right? Do you think that the orphan and the widow is is really the reason that they were working more? Well, we'll we'll let God deal with the heart there. That's God's department. We'll deal with a passage. How about that? With all their spare time devoted to prospering, uh, we will discover today that Israel remained unfulfilled in every way. Neglecting the Lord's house had not caused them to flourish. Rather, God's divine hand had caused their surplus to evaporate. 
And as they neglected the Lord's work to pursue all their other priorities, they were still not satisfied. Imagine that. Well, that'll preach today. If you would like an application of last week's message, it is this. Recommit yourselves to building the Lord's house, which today is Christ's church, uh, that temple which is Christ's body, and it's built through one-on-one evangelism, sharing of tracts, another way is inviting people to church as did the woman at the well inviting to see the Lord Jesus for themselves. Come see the man, she said. Come see this man. And then the visitors come and uh, we together to our guests reveal that same man today, the Christ. We are a living manifestation of his body. This old covenant temple, well, it it served as a shadow of what was to come. Uh, Today it's found in Christ. Employing your spiritual giftedness, the generosity, uh, visiting the sick, uh, serving everywhere, exhortation through singing, and cheerfulness and welcoming new guests. Uh, These and just... in innumerable other roles of service contribute to this building process of Christ's church. And that was last week's lesson from this passage. Recommit yourselves to building what God wants built. This week, out of the same passage, uh, you and I will come to recognize that, well, ignoring God's command to build in order to accumulate wealth and abundance, it will ultimately leave us dissatisfied. Dissatisfaction is one reason our, well, our unbelieving neighbors, they just keep building bigger and bigger and buying more and more. The lesson for Christians today is this. You ready? This may sting a little bit. Stop consuming in vain attempts to fill your heart and be satisfied because God won't allow it. Stop accumulating the cars, stop expanding the homes, stop filling the garages and closets and striving to earn more and more thinking that that is going to bring you satisfaction. It will not. And God will vigorously thwart such attempts. We'll find there is no question in this passage that God is sovereign and that He will deny satisfaction from His people if they abandon Christ's prerogative to build His church. Haggai is going to reveal to God's people they would experience more enjoyment, more fulfillment if they would invest themselves in something a little more substantive, the Lord's temple. The the house where God wishes to dwell 
And uh, we'll find by the time we leave here today that, folks, there is a deep satisfaction where the Lord dwells. These Jews, they, they thought they would be better off in life if they would you know, maintain, preserve a little distance between themselves and God, uh, delay the temple and delay what they would expect under the old covenant, uh, a fresh indwelling of the temple, just for a season, right? Just, just put that off for a season. Let's defer to a more opportune time. Last week we heard Haggai say, uh, them say to Haggai, it's, it's not the time. Just not good timing. Maybe after the house is paid off. When the kids are grown and out on their own. Or, or when my career and my business finally get off the ground. Let me ask you this honestly. Just Honestly. Is there a better time to build than today? There is no better time to build than today. When could there possibly be a better time to build? And if you belong to Christ, if you're redeemed by His blood, think about it. Will holding off on getting serious about God Will that improve your lot in life and provide more satisfaction? Well, let's look at our text and see what happened. In verse, in verse 6, we'll start there. In verse 6, oh, they have been working so hard, folks. Boy, they're working hard. God says, you have sown much key there is they've invested a lot of time in their field. They've sown a lot of grain, hoping for a big harvest. You have sown much, says the Lord, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. Do you perceive that this shortage of resources, their perceived shortage of what they have, it's been a result of time, space, and chance? Just bad luck. You know, have you, you ever wondered why you had a bad year or ten? That, that fate is not a result of chance. Through the prophet Hosea, he prophesied much earlier to the northern kingdom of Israel, before all of this occurred, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, who had been playing the harlot, by the way, had been, had been chasing after idols. Hosea declared to Israel, who's described as an unfaithful harlot, quote, for she does not know says the Lord, that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for 
fail. Therefore, says the Lord, I will take back my grain at harvest time. In my new wine in its season, I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. God says, I'll take it back. Hosea 2, verses 8 and 9. Folks, do you believe that God controls your income? Most people do. The predominant view in America is that God showers you with abundance because He's just so impressed that you're a good person. And we'll challenge that in a little bit. But that's the predominant view because we live in a flourishing culture compared to the rest of the world. So we think we must just be really, really good. And God really, really thinks we're awesome. Well, before we go too much further, a little clarification is in order. We just worked through First and Second Thessalonians. God does not scold Israel here, the Jews here, uh, for working hard. As we said last week, He does not scold them for owning a house and enjoying that house. Scripture remains consistent, Old and New Testaments, that God expects everyone to work hard. <clears throat> Our study through Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago taught us that hard work, well, it's a conduit through which God blesses us. The King Solomon says it comes directly from the hand of God. But Solomon declares in the same passage, so does the accompanying enjoyment. That comes from God too. Enjoyment too is from God regardless of whether you have little or much. but working incessantly to inquire more in lieu of, in place of, obedience. Folks, it will only leave you dissatisfied. If you look at verse 9, Haggai offers even further clarity. Remember that they've worked hard to so much. They've been busy. But now God says, you look for much. But behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. It means they're actually having a harvest. But when you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Why were they still unsatisfied? Because enjoyment, that's Ecclesiastes 2 verse 25, can only come from the Lord. And their heart was not on a path that sought satisfaction in building the temple of God. They're looking elsewhere. Are we getting this? Are we getting this? That temple made of wood and stone under the old covenant was a foreshadowing of the temple where God's Spirit 
dwells within redeemed Christians. Under the new covenant, Christ is building a living temple. He builds his church. Haggai provides for us a parallel using God's people to build. It's a parallel. It, it's a teaching device for us, a very historical uh, a series of events in the Old Testament that serve as a teaching device for us as we recognize that soul redemption, the redemption of human souls, that is what supplies the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. That's the house of God today. Uh, Israel didn't want to build for the Lord a house to dwell. They want to work on that project. Therefore, God, by His sovereign hand, made certain that through their alternate pursuits, they would always render some degree of disappointment. Nothing else can satisfy except obeying the will of God. That's why Jesus was so satisfied, even though He hadn't eaten and He hadn't drank. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. We are all expected to work hard. No question about that. Uh, but some pursuits, they just perpetually remove us from the building project. Here, here's where the rubber meets the road. The Israelites concluded they would get further ahead by forsaking their covenant obligations. Have we forsaken ours? Anyone here when they are saved, think back when you were just saved, understood that Christ died for your sins, that, that He rose from the dead, you committed your heart to Him. Some of you I know did that kneeling by a sofa or by a chair somewhere, am I right? And what did you tell the Lord? You said, I will go to China in order to serve the Lord God of heaven. I will do whatever he wants me to do. Some of you did that. I kind of prayed I wouldn't have to go to China. Um, but I remember, I said, Lord, you have given everything to us. Everything through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we have been given all we need. Lord, use me. Find a way to use me. Let me ask this. My, my wife just returned home uh, from a conference. She does sales uh, now in, in dental products. And uh, she just returned from a conference yesterday. Are you sure you will ring in more sales by working seven days a week? You might say, oh, oh yes, I'm sure. My sales numbers and my data prove it. Okay, okay. Are you sure that added income on your tax statement isn't going into a purse that has holes in it? We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm positive, Pastor. You should see my portfolio balance, my assets. It's looking really good. Okay. 
Are you sure that Christ is pleased with your behavior? And is he glorified through it? That's a question you have to ask. I can't answer that for anyone here but my own heart. Has your heart taken you down a path that leads further from him? Rather than drawing you nearer to the place where God dwells. Our barns may be full down here, but how is our portfolio looking up there? We will sow what we, we will reap what we sow. And uh, to the man who filled barns, Jesus says, You fool, you fool. You now have it all. The barns are completely full, and you're not going to be able to enjoy a single bit of it. Luke chapter 12. Today I demand your life from you. It's gone. No satisfaction in all that he earned. When it comes to the love of money, (laughs) here it is. Folks, the heart heart is like a purse full of holes that can never be filled. That's when it comes to a love of money. Uh, You'll always be left wanting more. You'll be left to wonder, where did it all go? Well, the purse with holes, uh, that is graphic imagery. And in Haggai's day, Currency for virtually everything in his day uh, consisted of small wedges or chunks of copper and silver. They, they were weighed for value. Yes, coins existed. The concept of coins existed, but they were not in circulation at this time. They were very rare. It's mostly small little chunks of metal. But the imagery of coins works as well. Meanwhile, purses were a bag with a string tied inside your belt. A little leather pouch. Um, Imagine all of your hopes are in the fistfuls of quarters that you keep tossing into a leather pouch with gaping holes in it. You don't even notice. The pouch can illustrate your heart when it thinks that it can prosper through, well, working harder and forsaking God. You may earn a lot, but somehow it just keeps falling through. And the heart never fills. So there's never any ultimate satisfaction. God's reference to, in verse 5, to sowing much, it appears to indicate that they believed their diligence and hard work would supply and satisfy. That's what they believed, uh, even though they neglected the temple. It was a misplaced optimism. God says, I will blow it away. That means after they've earned it, I'll blow it away. God's hand is sovereign. In the end, at the judgment seat of Christ, you will not end up with more if you forsake the building of God's temple. 
your pursuits in this life, they will always leave your heart half empty. They'll always leave your heart half empty. And what you harvest will never be enough. Never be enough. God essentially says in the context, it doesn't matter how much you sow or how grand a home you build, my hand will never permit you to be satisfied in what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. God says, my hand will not permit you in Israel to be satisfied with what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. True satisfaction continues to escape you as I blow it all away. Uh, Folks, materialism, we know this. We just have to say it again from time to time to remind us because we know it. Materialism is a perpetual state of always wanting a little something more. Just a little something more. That's not what Christianity believes. During the process of observation in this text, as we've been studying in the other building for adult Bible class, during the process of observation, I became suspicious that this narrative may reveal something more, or at least allude to something more, uh, perhaps due to Haggai's cry to examine your hearts. He said, what we got here is a heart problem. And I found multiple commentaries that highlight uh, that unlike many Old Testament narratives, this people, this people in Israel, it's not described as hungry or thirsty or naked. Rather, the context magnifies how they remain dissatisfied and how their experience is never enough. God's hand had surely restrained through drought and, well, and then the purse with holes in it. Uh, That implies a diversity of bad investments that led to loss. But they had earned. They had put money into the bag. The economy is working. They harvested some because God blew it away. They weren't broke, is what I'm saying. They, they had earned money, but their purse had holes that fell out. Boy, does that sound like the stock market or what? It isn't like they didn't have any. Rather, the emphasis seems to be that they had some. But for them, it wasn't enough. Never enough. One renowned Irish theologian named Alec Motyer. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he's, he's written some pretty important works. Alec Motyer, uh, he wrote a commentary on, on Haggai, which I was urged to get, and he's, he's really outstanding. Um, Alec Motyer suggests this in the following. Quote, The customary view that Haggai's people were passing through hard times needs to be questioned. What the prophet exposes here is not hardship, but non-fulfillment. They had sea to sow, says Motyer, food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, gainful employment, but no true satisfaction. 
They had some. Their priorities needed adjustment. Uh, Mottier goes on to state, quote, For us, this is a really great summary here. For us, as for Haggai, the only proper reaction to a world run by a sovereign and holy God, meaning he's in control of everything, he's in control of finances, the only proper reaction to a world run by a sovereign and holy God is to determine to be properly related to him first, in whose hand is our breath and in, in whose hand are all our ways. Him first. That means be restored to him and then trust that he is in control. Well, it's, it's almost like do not worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear, but seek his kingdom first and then all these things will be added to you. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? True satisfaction will only ever be found in recommitting ourselves to building the temple where God dwells. That's what we are here for. Yes, we work. Yes, we enjoy the provisions God gives us. He gives us a lot. Under the new covenant, God reveals to us that he has no desire to dwell in temples made by human hands. Uh, instead, by his spirit, God seeks to dwell in human hearts. Uh, that, that divine prerogative is very clear. And this only occurs through our propagating the good news of the gospel, uh, which reveals to us that, that we were, before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were separated from a holy and righteous God because we were sinners. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all included in this analysis. And then Christ, Christ himself suffered and died for our sins that we wouldn't have to. Then he rose again on the third day. True satisfaction will only ever come in serving the Lord Jesus. That's it. We may appreciate the wonderful things that God has given us, and it's been a lot, especially in a prosperous country, but it will not bring satisfaction like serving the will of God. Uh, God's desire is to dwell in this new heart, which which he offers you today, if you don't know him. God, God offers, he makes the offer today. In the Old Testament, God promised through Jeremiah uh, that, that he would make a new covenant, one that's different than the shadow of old. And Jeremiah says this, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and Hebrews 10, verse 16 assures us, uh, by quoting that passage uh, directly, it assures us that this promise that is given 
it's experienced today in Christ Jesus. God offers to give you this new heart. He offers to dwell in you, and, and you can take it from us, by the way. Yeah, you, you can take our word for it. You can take it from us who, who've tried. You don't have to raise your hand. But you can take it from us who have tried to relentlessly work harder to earn more and then still found our hearts remained half empty. But you can take it from us. There is a deep satisfaction where God dwells. A deep satisfaction. And by faith, His Spirit will adjust your priorities and remove your lustful yearnings to always acquire more. Boys, is there anyone here, again, don't raise your hands, is there anyone here who is completely sick of that? Completely sick of dealing with the lustful yearnings of, of just always needing more? Boy, I, I was. I was. Talked some with Ryan Allison this week, and we were expressing to one another how thankful we are that God comes to remove that desire of always wanting more of this world. Ryan is now satisfied. I am now satisfied. The people of this church are now satisfied in Christ. And you can be today. You can be today. The Apostle Paul declares in Philippians 4.11, I got reminded in morning adult Bible class that this is written from jail, by the way. He said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul here doesn't suggest in the passage that he simply learned to suffer well. Just, just, you know, really buckle down and, and keep from emotionally, emotionally caving in during a down economy. He isn't just saying, I learned to suffer better uh, under grievance. He's stating that his focal point of deep satisfaction is in Christ and that it is completely unrelated to his material wealth. All satisfaction is in Christ. It is unrelated to material wealth. And when it comes to abandoning that love in your heart to always attain more, and you abandon that to receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the Lord says, you have to forsake the wretched world and give it all away. Give it all away. To give up there, Jesus says, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. To give up means to disengage your heart from always wanting more 
and more. Disengage it. We cannot serve both God and money. There will never be satisfaction down that path, ever. If you belong to Christ, He will not allow it. Serving both of those, boy, it, it is a damning lie. Very prominent today. Many have been deceived into thinking, you know, that uh, the gospel, it, it's a handshake deal with God. I'll commit to follow you if you preserve my assets. And, and as you prosper me further, well, then I'll give a portion back to you and, you know, we'll do this whole thing together, Jesus. That is called the prosperity gospel where people believe their relationship with God can be affirmed by how well they prosper in this life. Didn't preach real well for the apostles who suffered and died in this life. Um, that, that deception, folks, it's not just in the mega churches. I, I'm sure there's probably someone here, if not today, at one point, who would embrace that false gospel which says, I'm doing pretty fine. It proves that I enjoy God's favor. Uh, my obligation in all of this success is to give a percentage back. A handshake deal. God, keep me going where I want to go. I'll give him a little bit back. And the heart motive, this, this is the real deception in it. Their heart motive or their, their underlying passion for following Jesus is their expectation that God will surely maintain their standard of living. That is a selfish motive. That is not a true gospel. What God will maintain is your satisfaction in Christ. Uh, boy, that is a completely false gospel. Um, I've, I've observed these folks. You probably have as well. Um, not, not to be mean. I've observed and talked to them. They are still not satisfied. How do I know? Well, they're not satisfied. They just have achieved a comfortable standard of living, and they like that. That is their God, by the way, that I can maintain this comfortable standard of living. Uh, but you see in things when, uh, this is just one illustration, uh, just out of the blue, uh, you see they are dissatisfied because they, they're trading their six-month-old Corvette for an Aston Martin Roadster. What does that mean? They're dissatisfied. They remain dissatisfied. Uh, but folks, opulence is not a fruit of the Spirit. God isn't into making deals. And the prosperity gospel is not what he wants for you. He wants to renew your heart to be completely satisfied, not in this world, but in his son. That's what he wants. Complete satisfaction in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. 
That is not a statement of his from just naive idealism. Oh, that sounds really spiritual. No, it is the reality for Christians. With food and with covering, with those things adequate, we will be content. And yet by God's grace, just by his loving grace, uh, most of us still enjoy significantly more than that. The wonderful life that he has given us. But because you must forsake the world to gain gain Christ, God's free gift of salvation is directed at repentant hearts, at contrite hearts that are, well, they are wearied and fatigued. Is your heart weary today and just fatigued by trying to keep up with the Joneses? Have you had it? Because grace is not to those wanting to be the Joneses. And if you're tired of sin, if you're tired of experiencing shame and being steamrolled by the world, what it feels like sometimes financially, today is God's offer of complete satisfaction to you for the forgiveness of sins. That offer is generously extended to everyone here today. Throughout the centuries, you might conclude this now, throughout the centuries, the millennia, really, uh, 2,000 years, throughout all these years, Christianity has always remained very attractive to people who are broken. You've probably read that in a book somewhere, right? The early church was made up of the poor, the destitute, those who had nothing, and they found great satisfaction in the gospel. They had no stock options. Christ said, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? So if you're feeling crushed, you're in good company. You're in good company. Christianity has always been very attractive to the broken, the poor, the orphan, and the widow, and the marginalized, and the outcast. Because they've all been left behind. And your heart needs satisfaction not in the world. It needs satisfaction in the fact that the stain of sin is removed. Complete removal of all stain of sin. To be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That's it. Then, then Then we continue on through this world, building what God builds. Concerning this passage, John Calvin writes, when he speaks to punery, that means to those who only have a little bit, okay? Old old word. Calvin writes, those who are become hardened in in enduring evils, those crushed, do not seek much. But they who desire much are more troubled and vexed by their punery. This is the reason why the prophet says, Ye have looked for much, and behold, there was but little. That is, ye are not like the peasants, 
who satisfy themselves with any sort of food and are not troubled on account of their impoverished circumstances. But your desire has led you to seek abundance. Hence ye seek and greedily lay hold on things on every side. But behold, it comes to little. John Calvin. For Christians, once that God has satisfied our desire for forgiveness, our desire becomes verse 8. Our desire is for our Lord to be satisfied, for Him to be pleased, for Him to be glorified. He says that will happen through our building His temple. Therefore, He says, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple. Where do we find the building supplies today? Well, here's where we find them. Straight up. Can't misinterpret this passage. In Jesus' parable of the dinner, the big dinner, the big feast, in Luke, 7, uh, Luke 14, we learn the self-righteous and those who are already satisfied in the world, oh, I got a lot to do. I got oxen to go count. Those who are already satisfied in the world, they make excuses. They don't want to come and dine with Christ, the Master, as he's described in that passage. Is it any surprise then that the Master sends his servants to those whose society has figuratively crushed? Jesus said in reply, Go out at once into the streets. And into the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. There is still room, they say. And Jesus, the master, said to the slave, go into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in. Why? So that my house will be filled. couldn't get any clearer. And the prophet Zechariah will reveal, as we've already studied, I'll, I'll bring it back in a couple weeks, uh, this building project in Jerusalem, uh, it, it is a symbol. It is a literal series of historic events. But Zechariah tells us this is a symbol for the temple which Christ, will, which Christ builds in the New Testament by His Holy Spirit. This is what we are working for. Like everything else in the Old Testament, it serves as a shadow of what is to come, and the substance is in Christ. Uh, concerning these scriptures, Haggai and the Old Testament, Jesus says, these are the scriptures that teach about me. No ditching the Old Testament. Quickly, before we go, this will just be a photo snapshot, a quick snapshot of what it looks like to be completely satisfied and filled. It's a picture of Jesus. In our earlier scripture reading, the woman at the well was convinced she needed water. Jesus says, I'll give you living water. And uh, she concluded, if I just don't have to come and draw this water anymore, then I would be satisfied. That's all I need. Sir, 
give me this water. Translation, my problems would be solved and I'd be so satisfied if only my house had running water. Things were easier. Jesus knows that won't fix anything. He points to her sin, the problem of her sin. He reveals to her heart that he is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. And she ecstatically, like we did when we were first saved, she ecstatically runs into town and tells everyone about the man who claims to be Messiah. She tells them all, come and meet the man. Come and meet this man and you can decide for yourself. Eventually they all come Uh, They all believe that he is truly the savior of the world. That's the end of the story. Uh, But while she's gone to town, while she's off doing that, Jesus' disciples return from town finally with lunch. They got carry out. They've got a nice lunch, and they know Jesus hasn't eaten for ages. And because they knew he was weary, weary from the journey, they say, Rabbi, eat. Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Essentially, he says, I'm already filled. I'm already satisfied. And as they stand bewildered, the disciples are bewildered, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what satisfies You ever sat after witnessing the gospel to someone? Remember when we used to win souls? Tell anybody we could about Jesus? Um, you remember sitting after witnessing with the gospel to someone and calling them out li- as a liar, a thiever, thieving, adulterous, adulterer at heart? That's the fun part. You call them out. No, you, you're a sinner. You got this big problem, friend that you gotta, you got to deal with somehow, and then you reassure them that complete satisfaction for those sins is offered this day in Christ. Remember that? Folks, there is no greater satisfaction than sharing the gospel. Nothing will give you goosebumps and satisfaction like calling people to trust in Christ. There's nothing better on earth for us who've been redeemed and it'll cause you to say, you'll say, it'll say, um, boy, I'm so full right now. I'm so full. And that's because you have, in principle, by sharing the gospel with them, just invited them to become a dwelling for the living God. Open yourselves up to the dwelling of the living God. And uh, winning souls, folks, that is a major component of building Christ's kingdom. You probably won't start by saying, you know, God wants to dwell in you. That might kind of freak him out a little bit. Um, There'll be a time for that later. Tell them that there is forgiveness for your sins in Jesus Christ. As the crowd returned with the woman from the well appeared, this is the end of the story, and then I'll close. Thank you for your patience today. Jesus told his disciples, do you, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. 
Already he who reaps is receiving wages. Going to his heavenly account. And is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. It's a team effort. For in this case the saying is true, said Jesus, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. There is a deep satisfaction where God dwells. 